I'd just like to spend a few minutes tonight looking at chapter 2 of John. Um, it's great when we sing the Psalms because they often express for us what we're afraid to admit. And if you're here this evening and uh, you're struggling and it's a battle and it's difficult, well, you're not, you're in good company. Because the psalmist expresses very often that and comes round to knowing and trusting and relying on God. And that is what faith is about. It's recognizing that and holding on to that. And uh, that's one of the reasons, one of the prime reasons we meet together. To worship God and focus on him and sing his praises and learn uh, about him so that our faith grows and we encourage one another and build each other up. I know for many people in the church, related to the church, not just related to your work, generally in your studies, but also church work. People have been very busy this last week, and I know many of you are tired, having uh, really uh, put in a lot of effort to to come at 7 o'clock in the morning to pray here, and and that's been great. And uh, so uh, I will be short, and uh, if you fall asleep, then you will have a dispensation. Great thing about uh, John's gospel um, uh, is it's, it, it, it kind of it's like an hourglass uh, of revelation. Uh, John spends a lot of time emptying uh, our thinking of the or our thinking, particularly maybe of the Jewish people, of the Old Testament rituals, emptying it out and uh, revealing Jesus Christ and filling up the hourglass at the bottom with the glorious truth of Jesus Christ and who he is. And uh, John's focus is very much on the last three years of Jesus' life. You know, you look at the beginning of John, we know it well, we've been talking about it a lot recently. It doesn't start with the angels came down and talked about the birth of Jesus. It doesn't deal with any of that stuff. It doesn't deal with uh, his temple Excursion when he abandoned uh, his, or his parents abandoned him, doesn't speak about his upbringing, goes straight to the uh, reality of who he was and went on to the, the baptism of John. It's right focused on the whole uh, Gospel of John is focused on the last three years of Jesus' life and uh, in a very particular way. It spends the first uh, 12 chapters uh, of the book, um, is often called the Book of Signs. And it's signs about Jesus and who Jesus is and what points, what makes him, very like this morning in many ways what we're looking at, why, what makes him much better than anything else, Jesus being much better than anything else. And in this chapter, uh, I just want to speak about two words very briefly, transformation and revolution. Because both of these things uh, are significant in the stories that we have. The first one is the story of uh, Jesus changing the water into the wine. I've entitled this section, More Than Just a Wedding. Okay? It's a very well-known passage. It's a beautiful passage, a very simple passage. And we love it. You know, it's really easy. It's a great passage about the miracle of Jesus and what he's done. And uh, it's just so very, there's so much in it. Even I was reading it again, I was thinking of various lots of things I would love to spend time on, but we don't really have time this evening to do so. But um, at a Jewish wedding, and you know, again, they would, they would generally be weddings that lasted for days, 
the celebrations lasted for days. You'd think a Highland wedding's a kind of uh, marathon. Well, it's nothing like a Jewish wedding because they go on for days and it starts with a very small circle of family. Then it grows to the uh, uh, relations. Then it grows to the neighbors. Then it grows to the whole village. So everyone ends up coming in. So you need a lot of wine. You need a lot of food, but you need a lot of wine. And of course, uh, fairly, it would seem fairly early on in the proceedings at this wedding to which Jesus and his disciples and Jesus' family were invited, they ran out of wine. And that was uh, unforgivable. It was an uh, 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 inhospitable thing to do. It was a disaster uh, for the family name. And now, even at this point, uh, Jesus and John is making clear that uh, Jesus' mind is on the cross. My hour, he says, or my time uh, in verse 4, has not yet come. He's not yet come to this hour, but he recognizes uh, that uh, he will work a miracle here. And I think there's an inter- a very interesting little point where he says, uh, dear woman, to his mother. And it may be, uh, maybe reading more into this than there is, but it would seem to suggest that even by this point he's beginning to change or signify to his mother that the relationship is changing. He is now in his public ministry. He's the redeemer. He's the savior. Still her son. But it's a bit like what he says on the cross to her woman. Behold your son, son. Behold your mother. And there's almost a slight stepping back from his natural relationship into this new relationship with him. And he brings, he asks for these six ceremonial washing uh, uh, containers to be brought to him. That in itself, significant. Linking with the Old Testament and uh, with the, the rituals that the Old Testament uh, um, believers would have been involved in, the washing. And in a miraculous way, he turns these huge jars, probably if... Uh, Declan or Ross or James or Thomas were to stand up uh, or jump in, they would fit in standing up into these jars. They were big jars. They, they were kind of like not jars we would have. They're big, you know, the kind you see in the Lawrence of Arabia. Like these big things. People could go in. And they held huge amounts, as, as we're told there, 20 to 30 gallons. And so they could have stood in it. And Jesus uh, changes miraculously this water into the very best wine. And you see what they did? The best wine, they started with the family and people had had to drink too much. Cheap wine. You know, it's it's an old ploy. And the host says, this is the best, the very best wine. And you've kept it till now. Now, primarily, this is not a miracle. Or this is not Jesus attending a wedding to sanctify marriage. Okay? It's often used at weddings. This, in fact, I think it's in some of the, the blurb that uh, some churches use. That, uh, you know, and Jesus attended the wedding and sanctified the, uh, the significance of marriage by attending the wedding. That's not really the point of the story. It's imp- we know from many other places in Scripture the, the, the reality and the significance of marriage. He's no more sanctifying marriage here than he sanctifies fishing when he goes in boats. Um, uh, he, he's uh, not as he legitimizing drink. 
You know, people have often said that, oh, well, you know, it's you know, Jesus, legitimately, he pr- produced enough wine to make everyone absolutely paralytic. With it's not about that. It's not really about that at all. It's not about him legit. It's not saying there's other places in the Bible that talk about alcohol, but it's not here. What is, we're missing the point uh, if that is what uh, we take from it. What we recognize, the central message really uh, for us, or maybe two central messages, is uh, he did it to reveal his glory. Verse 11 says that. This the first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed at Canaan Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So it was a sign. This is the book of signs, the first 12 chapters of John. And here uh, we have uh, the first of these great signs and the, the disciples put their trust in him because God, Jesus revealed his glory. Now we know this story, don't we? But it was a remarkable miracle that reveals Jesus as God because he didn't even touch the water as far as we know. All we're told is that he filled it with water and when they went to draw it, it was the best of wine because he is a great miracle-working God. And there's, there's something beyond that that the disciples would have come to recognize and to think about and that we need to think about also is that Christ has come to replace the emptiness and the ordinariness of the Old Testament ritual with life and with abundance. Wine in the Bible often has that connotation of life and uh, opulence and celebration and uh, joy. And we see that this is the coming age of the Messiah who is introducing a we- is going to introduce for his people a wedding banquet. Here is the bride of Christ. And uh, salvation is going to be a marriage feast. And he's pre- going, to, uh, he's going to make uh, his... Uh, he's the, uh, we are the... Sorry, did I say he was the bride of Christ? The church is the bride of Christ. Uh, and uh, we are being prepared... Uh, to meet with him. And uh, there's this great uh, picture of um, opulence and joy and celebration, which is mirrored even in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which uh, we take uh, as a reminder to us of the Lord's table, uh, of the marriage feast of the Lamb, which moves forward from the Passover uh, through the Lord's Supper. And we do it until he comes. And so there's a, there's a picture here. It's a sign of transformation. That Jesus comes into our lives and comes into the lives of his people to transform them. To transform uh, us from the inside out and to bring us this great life. He empties the religion and the ritual. And there's much in the... Uh, New Testament, there's much in John particularly, uh, I think I maybe mentioned this before, about contrasts, that uh, uh, Jesus talks about darkness and light, about death and being alive, about heaven and hell. And he comes to bring abundance. And this is a picture of that abundance. He's provided far more than they need. He's provided the very best, absolute, kind of 
flicks back to the great picture in Isaiah of heaven uh, and uh, the opulence of heaven uh, of being like a great feast and wine on the lees and, and all of these great pictures. And it's a reminder to us that Christ has come to bring transformation into the life of his people. And he is glorious. He reveals his glory in so doing. And that is what we are to look for and remind ourselves of in our Christian lives. That he's come to transform us. He doesn't want us to be in the gutters. He doesn't want us to be uh, treating him as if he is insignificant. He wants us to move beyond the ritual and know the abundance of life that he brings through the Spirit of God in us. And it reminds us of what he gives. He's a great and abundant and beautiful saviour. He is here to transform us, transform our heart, and transform our lives and give us hope and a future. And I think within the, this great sign, within this great picture of abundance that the gospel brings, there's a really strong parallel between that and what we were talking about this morning. is a simple reminder that Christ cares about every dini. Jesse does an amazing miracle, and uh, he does it to perform, reveal his glory, and the, the disciples put their faith in him. But it's a very everyday situation, isn't it? Well, it was in, in the sense. He comes and is willing to cater for very ordinary needs. His face is out. His time has not yet come. It's three short years. That, that's the time of a degree for you young people who are doing degrees. It's not like it passes very quickly. In three years, what, what, what will we do in three years' time? It passes like a flash for us. People are away from here and we're giving them books in the summer before they've hardly arrived. They go, time moves so quickly. In fact, so quickly sometimes I give people books and they're not even leaving. That's a different story. That's just senility. But, you know, here's the three years. And Jesus has got this three years and he's focused already at this point on on this great burden and this great weight of what's happening. And he's making his declaration. He's been 30 years on there and he's making his public. His hour hasn't yet come, but he's moving towards that time. And uh, the word has been made flesh. His face is set to Calvary. Yet he's at a wedding. Takes time to accept the invitation. His mother, and I'm sure at that point he was very probably the head of the family because his father we presume may have died by this point, or we presume he would have been mentioned here. And uh, his mum comes to him with a problem. Isn't that interesting? Um, you know, they have no more wine. That's all she says. This is Jesus. Why did, why did she go to Jesus and say that? Did, did she know that Jesus would be able to do a miracle by this stage? Remember, it says a couple of times in the Gospels that Mary treasured these things up in her heart. So she had this knowledge of who Jesus was. We don't know all she would have been taught. But she goes to him, even at this point, saying they have no more wine. Her, his mum comes with a problem. And uh, he deals with it and uses it in a remarkable way to show his glory. Now, you may be sitting here this evening and you may think that God is so great that he is not interested in your inconsequential problems. Now, I'm not saying you're going to pray to him about you're running out of wine in your cellar tonight. But you know, the ordinary, everyday problems of life, he is a great sovereign king, and he wants us to come to him 
with our needs and with our troubles and with our difficulties. This is our God. Why has this prayer week been so significant and is so significant? Because we are learning to live by faith and bring our ordinary, insignificant, troublesome a lack of faith to him in prayer and looking for miracles and looking for answers. That's what it means to live by faith. It's not, nece- it's not having great orthodox understanding of the gospel alone in our heads and the truths of the great God in our minds. It's taking these things and applying them to the everyday struggles and battles that we face and believing that he cares and is interested in our lives. And that's what prayer is about, taking our burdens to the living God and uh, seeing him. He will reveal his glory. Why are so many of us struggling in our Christian lives to a greater or lesser degree? Because we don't believe in the power of Jesus Christ. We don't believe that he's worthy of worship and that he is glorious. That's why we try and sort everything out ourselves. That's why we we try and come to our own conclusions. That's why we shake our puny fists at heaven when he doesn't give us what we want because we're not praying in his will and we're not praying at all. We're independent, self-contained, self-righteous sometimes and he isn't glorious to us. He isn't worth worshipping. He isn't worth turning up for. He isn't worth praying to. He isn't worth speaking to and giving our lives to. This is our God, the servant king. This is our God who is glorious and he reveals his glory in this remarkable way. And we need the Spirit of God to open up Scripture to us. And we need to be students of Scripture so they will see these truths and apply them and believe in them and be uh, moved by them. Jesus changes the water into wine more than just a wedding. And in the second story, very briefly, is... uh, Jesus uh, in the temple and uh, just I've entitled this section the temple is not a church and we can maybe go on to, to look about that just very briefly the situation here being that the Passover which was about to happen and they went up to uh, the time of uh, in Jerusalem to the time of the Passover and the situation by this point in, in uh, Jerusalem was the Passover had become hugely commercialized and uh, it was an end in itself. And uh, the temple had become the center of Jewish life, uh, of law, of government, in a sense, of religion, even of taxation. And it had lost uh, its original intention to be the place where God was in the Holy of Holies and where he was to be worshipped. Yes, these uh, animals were being sold for sacrifice, but you know there, there was a good old business going on here, and people were abusing the situation and were using religion to uh, make money and to, to profiteer and to squeeze uh, the poor out of uh, what uh, they almost didn't have at all. And uh, Jesus takes this situation, and again, he's, he empties it. He empties the Old Testament Uh, understanding of the temple and replaces it with himself and his claim to be the one who would uh, be raised from the dead and that you know he will destroy the temple in three days it'll be raised again and he you know it says uh, uh, Jesus was speaking about himself uh, at this point um, even though uh, the people didn't understand it 
So this story, the second, you know, we looked at the first story briefly. This second story, this is not about Jesus losing his temper. It's not about him losing control. Roar, he's raging and throws everything out of the place. It's not about that. Uh, nor is it a, a, a point about uh, G, uh, that, that churches should not be used for anything but worship. They shouldn't have uh, coffee mornings and all these kind of things in churches uh, because uh, they should be used for worship because they're special uh, places where God is. It's got nothing to do with that. This is not about equating the church building with the Old Testament temple. It's very different altogether. The message is again that Christ is coming with a revolution. He's coming to empty the Old Testament of its uh, religious ritual. He's coming to blow apart the... Uh, uh, reality of God being unavailable to the people. And in his death on the cross, this uh, holy of holies, which is unattainable uh, and, and can't get close to except through the priest once a year at the Passover, is going to be ripped in two from top to bottom. And there will be free access for you and me into the nearer presence of God through Jesus Christ because he is the one who is the temple and he is the one who uh, is destroyed and who... Uh, is resurrected on the third, third day. And there's this great recognition that what he is doing is radical and life-changing. That you, you can't imagine how um, dangerous it was to do what he did at the beginning of his ministry. It probably is what set the religious leaders of the day against Jesus because he appeared to be so blasphemous uh, and he appeared to be so... Crazy in what he was saying about the temple being rebuilt in three days, and they, they set their minds and their hearts against him from that point. But he was saying something absolutely crucial and radical that uh, Christ was going to be the Savior and the Redeemer and would turn the world upside down. And these disciples who remembered what he had said, we're told in verse 22, after he had risen, were the disciples who turned the world upside down. Ordinary, unschooled people who turned the world upside down because they saw what Jesus had come to do and the radical nature of emptying the ritual of the Old Testament and bringing uh, himself uh, into that place of uh, glory and honor and uh, redemption. It's the message, even at this point, as his hour has not yet come, that had Satan trembling and the angels questioning and is unique in the history of humanity and that Christ comes into our lives to turn our lives upside down. And he has done that and wants a people to follow him who are his bride, the local church. Yesterday was very interesting it was just amazing. You remember, because I've said this many times here, when I first came here 2001, two texts from the Bible were very important. I have many people in this city, and I will do a new thing. Now, at that point, 13 years ago, I had no concept, even at that point, no concept of what God would do to get us to this point. I, I couldn't have begun to imagine even uh, in any way that we would have what we have here and that we planted churches uh, and we're looking to plant more churches. Um, 
And when we come to the stage we're in here, uh, it was a a church, it was a city that was, uh, where the church was fragmented. Everyone was doing their own thing. Nobody cared really about what other people were doing. It's maybe the odd kind of pastors, lunch, things like that, but nothing much. But there's been a remarkable change. And uh, God, I mentioned it this afternoon, we were talking about it. These are dark days in the city, spiritually. Um, It's almost as dark in many ways you think it could get, but we're almost to that point probably where we're going to get very near legally and we probably to be persecuted. Um, and there's a, a kind of agenda of rampant atheism or secularism where you feel that that philosophical mindset is winning the day and is a bit like a, a, roller, a, a steamroller. And we say, what can the church do? Well, I, on, I, I do feel and I honestly feel that the darkest moment comes before the dawn. And I believe spiritually that God is setting in place great things to turn this city upside down. Uh, There's huge opportunities and God is moving people. And yesterday to have 450 people or whatever together, not only worshipping, but with a a single mind for for the the gospel. Uh, And the gospel in this city and and well, well beyond it was really moving for me. And I think where the devil thinks, it's a bit like the darkness of Gethsemane, where the devil almost, you feel that he, th- he thought it was his point of victory. Uh, and maybe even the nails going into the hands and feet of Christ, that this was Satan's greatest moment. But it becomes uh, his absolute destruction. And similarly, uh, God is turning this city upside down. And I believe that. And I want us to pray about that. And I want us to see and ask God to work and to reveal his glory and remind us of himself. Because that whole concept of the Old Testament and the Old Testament temple is destroyed in Jesus Christ. The, The church of the New Testament, the building, for example, is not the temple anymore. Christ is our representative. He is our high priest uh, he is the focus of our worship. We worship, as he said to the Samaritan women, in spirit and in truth. And it involves his destruction and his resurrection. And our hope is in him. Not in a building. And not in a denomination. And not in a church. And not in a, a, a form of uh, religion. And then as he becomes the temple that is destroyed and is rebuilt. So in salvation, we become the temple. So we become the dwelling of God. Not that, you know, you don't come in the, you, we, and we use the language, you know, I'm, I'm coming to church to meet with God. No, you're not. You're not coming to church to meet with God. God is in our hearts. We are the temple of the... Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. We don't, we don't get a bus to come into church to meet with God in his temple. The temple is destroyed. God is not in this building uh, as his dwelling place. God inhabits the praises of his people. 
And we are his people. Do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So whenever people are gathered together, God's presence is with them because God is in them. And God is with you when you leave from here. So it's not like you act differently when you come into church because you think, well, God's here in some way. And then you can act a different way every other day of the week. Or that God's different because it's the Lord's day. And then on Monday to Saturday, you act differently because you think, well, that's my days. God is with us because we're his temple. So your conversation, anywhere that you go, in your workplace or your studies or your homes or in your mind, your morality, my morality, our private behavior, we should never have the mentality of, well, as long as no one finds out, it doesn't matter because... God dwells in us as Christians. And it's sort of, well, I need to act a certain way in church, but I don't need to act in that way with my friends. I don't need to think that way when I'm with other people. And we have kind of, there's such a danger, isn't there, of hypocrisy, that we act one way with our Christian friends, or, or when we think God is watching, or when we're in church, and we act differently at any other point. Ultimately, I think that's why it doesn't matter what, what kind of clothes we wear at church. We dress up for church. Why would we do that? I have no problem with anyone dressing up. That's fine. No problem. Then you're dressing up or dressing down. But the reality is God is God. And he sees, he sees well beyond our, our outward demeanor and outward behavior. And he sees into our hearts. And we can dress just like the Queen of Sheba. And it makes no difference to God's understanding. God knows us. And... Uh, We need to remember that, that he came with this great revolution to destroy the temple uh, and to uh, be raised up himself to bring in this glorious new kingdom where we become. So he dwells in us, he doesn't leave us as orphans. And we remember that this evening. And so, as we sit at the Lord's table for a few moments this evening, please remember and think about Jesus, how great he is and how he's always with us. And as I mentioned this morning, that even when we die, when in our moment of death, his spirit remains in us and our soul goes to be with him because we will no longer be dead, ever, because he instills his spirit to us and we are his children. And that same resurrection hope is ours today, which we worship him on the Lord's day, this resurrection day. It's so significant and so important. May we see his glory so that we put our faith in him like the disciples. The disciples put their faith in him. In whom is your faith this evening? It really matters. And it's not a, not, I don't mean by that, that your head knowledge of Christ or your standing at that level. I mean in whom you have entrusted your life in eternity and whom you live to serve. Hugely significant that uh, we're to be those who believe in him. believe by faith in him. That last verse is interesting, verse 24. Um, Many people saw what Jesus did and uh, they believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony but man for he knew what was in a man. Could well be there a difference between head knowledge and believing in him because they were impressed with his miracles and entrusting themselves to him because he was the glorious son of God 
Because many of those who seemed to believe, who followed him in the early days, who loved him, we're told when, when he started talking about their need and their lostness and their sin, he turned away and said, the sayings are hard, they're difficult, and they no longer followed anymore. We're not like the men and people of Hebrews, not to be those who turn back, but who uh, entrust ourselves to him. And please remember many people also that we know and love are blind. Just like the Jews who said it's taken 40 days, six years to rebuild the temple. You're going to raise it in three days? They didn't understand what he was saying. Please pray for our friends. Pray for your three friends. Pray that they will know and understand and see the Savior whom we love, who's transformed our lives, who has turned us upside down for good and who has redeemed us. And let's think about him at the Lord's table.